I'd like to do some Bible stories with you this morning, if that's okay. So if you've got a Bible with you, you might want to get it out. Um, my little girls get, us, get Leslie and I to do Bible stories every night. And I love it. It's one of my highlights. They, uh, they get more excited about it than I do. It's amazing. Every time they like Jesus stories because Jesus does cool stuff in his stories. He's always healing someone or feeding thousands of people. And yeah, they like Jesus doing cool stuff. And you should see how excited they get when someone gets healed or resurrected. They, uh, they yell, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. And then they dance around their room with their hands in the air and just celebrate. And we'll have the same story about that healing for two weeks. It doesn't matter. They'll have a party at the end of it every time. Yeah, I'm pretty boring when I read the Bible. I think I, I need to hang out with them a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we're going to spend um, a couple hundred years of... Um, of Israelite history this morning and we're going to do uh, a bit more next week as well but uh, I want to start here in Genesis chapter 12 and Lord as we just get into your word now let's pray that you just as you did with your disciples uh, in Luke Lord that you would open our eyes to see the mysteries in your word that you'd help us to understand beyond our own human intellect, Lord, to understand spiritually in our hearts. And that understanding, Lord, would just renew our minds, you transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran, and he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. After this, a great famine struck the land, and Abram was forced to flee Egypt, uh, flee to the land of Egypt so that his family could survive. I'm now paraphrasing, so this won't follow quite in your translation. But that's what happens next. They have to go to Egypt because the land that has been promised to his descendants can't support them at this stage. And through a series of events involving the Pharaoh and Abram's wife, Abram later leaves Egypt with significant wealth. 
Egypt ends up playing in, I believe, at least three instances, a major part in the story of God's people. And there were three occasions when God's people need to flee to Egypt. And in Egypt, they find safety, protection, they find great wealth, and a place where they can survive. Egypt becomes a staging area for God's people before they step into the next part of God's plan. When we think of Egypt, we often think of how bad a particular pharaoh was. But Egypt played a significant part in God's plan for his people. And it wasn't all bad. So when Abram left Egypt, he left with wealth that he didn't have when he first came. Abram then returns with his household to Canaan, where God appears to him again and tells him in Genesis chapter 13 now, turn the page, Genesis chapter 13 verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Then flick over to chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure." When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land 
from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kedmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. That's a lot of people. And what an amazing, phenomenal promise. Now, what I have done every time I've read that, that passage and that amazing promise, and that is a phenomenal pro- promise, I've read it a number of times, and every time I've read it, the promise that I read, the promise that I heard, was a promise about land and descendants. And I almost skip over, the, I think, the most important part, which is the very beginning. It almost sounds like an intro. But here's what God opens with in Genesis 15. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Sure, the promise, the covenant involved land. Property's great. It involved descendants. Generation after generation to come that would turn into great nations. That's awesome. But the real reward that generation after generation missed was God himself. But that promise gets lost in all the talk of promised lands and legacies of descendants. But you couldn't blame Abraham or any of his descendants if they ever missed that. In their culture, Middle Eastern culture, nomadic culture, land and sons, that is wealth. That is the greatest promise they could imagine they could ever have. But too many generations missed the true reward. And that's not a Middle Eastern thing. We have the same problem now. The rewards that we look for, the promises we look for from God are for good things, but not the best thing. Even in church, we measure reward and success by material possessions, by wealth. Here in church, by giving, by numbers, seats on bums. That's our sign that God is blessing us. Sorry, said bum. Said it again. Sorry. Truth is, they can be a sign that God is blessing us. But numbers and money, that's not the real reward. It is a deep and growing relationship with God himself. God made a promise to Abram. He called him out from his homeland to relocate his entire family, almost 1,500k away, to a land he didn't know. But God's promise and plan was that through Abram, God would raise up a mighty nation that would be set apart and dedicated to the Lord God. This would be a chosen people, That would be a blessing to all nations. And God would set out a home for them in the fruitful land called Canaan. This was a promise. God keeps his promises. But as is often the case, there is often quite a journey. 
even a number of journeys between the declaration of God's promises and the ultimate fulfillment. And we struggle with that. I think now more than possibly ever, because has there ever been a more impatient generation than this one now? Our culture is driven by faster and smaller, it seems. We can't wait for anything. When I say we, I mean me. I am the worst waiting in queues. Waiting in queues, waiting in traffic, I become phenomenally ungodly. So patience, waiting for God to fulfill his promises in his time, I struggle with that. I think a lot of us do. Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, who had 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. These sons would father 12 families that would become the 12 tribes of Israel, the Israelites, the chosen people of Yahweh. But still, they were a long way from the fulfillment of the promise that God had given their great-grandfather Abraham. You see, they were not the people they needed to be to claim the promise and fulfill God's destiny for them. I don't believe there's anything in Scripture which is irrelevant and is just there filling up space. I believe every word has a purpose. Remember that mouthy section I read from uh, Genesis 15 about all those peoples? All those people groups, those nations, those city-states are important because they occupy the land. They are occupying the land that was the promise. Those nations, those peoples are an obstacle to Israel fulfilling the promise God had for them. Every one of them is a series of battles, of struggles, of temptations to pull Israel away from God's plan for them. So every name there would become a huge struggle for Israel. Now to conquer a land, to conquer all those nations, those pagan peoples, you'd need to be a particular kind of people to be able to do that. You would need to know how to fight. You'd need to have confidence in your leadership. You'd need to have confidence in the promise that God had given you. And that was not the sons of Jacob. Not yet. Not for a long time yet. But God is faithful and he fulfills his promises. And so God does what God needs to do to turn us into the people that we need to become. We could make it a lot easier on ourselves by just going with it and letting God do the work in us. But we don't. We have our own strong wills and we resist him. And so instead of it being the easy way of us participating with God's work, it ends up most of the time being the hard way. And it's through trial and adversity that God's work is fulfilled in us. And it's only God's faithfulness that makes that even possible. He could just give up on us, but he doesn't. 
And so even though it's hard, the work is completed and we become who he's called us to be. That's definitely what he did with Israel. So God sends Joseph on ahead to Egypt to prepare the way for the next part of the story. It didn't look like it at the time, but God was doing something amazing in his life. At the time, it looked like Joseph had evil brothers who conspired to kill him out of pure jealousy, but ended up selling him to slavers. At the time, it looked like Joseph was framed and falsely convicted for attempted rape. At the time, it looked like he was wrongly convicted and thrown into prison for something he hadn't done. But the whole time, through all of these circumstances, God was working. He was working through these circumstances to hone the character of Joseph and to position him in the world to a place where he could save not just his family, but save a remnant that would become a mighty nation, a nation that could fulfill the promises that God had given. Could there have been an easier way to do it? No, whereas God would have used that. This was the only way. But Joseph's character throughout was proven to be solid. And he worked with God, he kept his faith, and the next thing you know, he's the prime minister of Egypt. The Pharaoh gave him all the power that he had, even over his own household. It was a difficult journey, but it was the journey he needed to take to become who and what he needed to be. His destiny was to become the ruler of Egypt and save his people. He couldn't do that back at home with dad, with Jacob, the favored son. The journey, the trials, the challenges, they were all essential in producing the man that could save his family and establish them in a land that would protect them for the next 215 years and protect them in amazing ways you could even miss. He gave his brothers strict instructions as they presented themselves to Pharaoh to make sure Pharaoh knew they were sheep herders. Now that instruction was crucial because for some reason, sheep herding, farming sheep, was a filthy practice to the Egyptians. They found it abhorrent. And so Pharaoh gave them a section of land, a fruitful piece of land, just for their own, removed from the rest of the Egyptians. They'd have their own land. And because they were considered to be filthy by the Egyptians, there was no intermarriage. Which, we're talking about building a nation here. They had their own piece of land and an opportunity, the freedom, to grow into what would become millions of people over the, the span of this 200 years. And even when things got hard, that was still protecting them from death, but also from becoming assimilated into Egyptian culture. God was preparing a people. And that next 215 years, even though it was technically safe, it certainly wasn't all roses. After Joseph died, a new pharaoh came to power, and he was not like the old one. He saw the Israelites as a growing threat, and he oppressed them. And he suppressed their growing numbers by ordering the slaughter of all newborn baby boys. But if you've seen 
the prince of Egypt, you know that one little boy slips through that net and miraculously ends up in the household of Pharaoh himself. And that little boy, of course, was Moses. God had a plan for Israel. He always had a plan. And Moses didn't know it yet. But he was a big part of that plan. God has a plan for his church too. And it seems like most of us don't know it yet. But we are a major part of that plan. And my problem has certainly been that throughout my life, I haven't been able to see the forest for the trees. All I can see is what is immediately in front of me, and I make my life all about me. All about my needs, all about my wants, all about my ambitions. Not recognizing that I am a small but important part of something so much bigger than me. And my plans and my desires... They're irrelevant, and they're too small, and they're not necessarily God's. And it's, it's just not about me. It's just not about me. Unfortunately, I've grown up in a country and a culture that makes it all about me. The pervasive culture of our, our, our nation is independence. It is about what you can make for yourself. A pioneering spirit is championed here. You look after number one. Old familial structures that used to be the culture of this land have been broken down. It's not even about family anymore. I got sick of hearing stories from Leslie that she'd bring back from her time working in rest homes. I've just... Old people abandoned. Mums and dads abandoned by their own families. Just left to die in rest times. How does that happen? That happens because it's not about family. It's just about me. And elderly parents are just an inconvenience. So what I'm trying to learn now is that it's not about me. And the more I come to understand that and give myself over to it, I find that what God has for me is even more exciting than I could ever have dreamed. Because my dreams are quite limited. They, they used to seem like they were quite big, and there was a time when I wanted to be a rock star. and There was a time when there were certain jobs I kind of wanted to have, and there was a certain kind of house I wanted or a car. But all these things are so limited and lame and just have no eternal consequence. What I find now more and more as I come to understand what God's trying to do is that his dreams are huge. And even my part, my little part in that is huge and so much bigger than anything I could have dreamed for myself. So what I'm trying to do now is stop dreaming for myself and let him dream for me. Man, his dreams are cool. But to do that and to get in that space, I've got to, I've got to put self aside. It is not about me. God has a plan. But I don't actually even think it's a plan for me. And I learned this a little while ago when I, when I started to read Jeremiah 29.11 properly. God has a plan for you, plan to prosper you, not to harm you, plan to hope in the future. God wasn't speaking to a person. He was speaking to a nation. 
He was speaking to Israel. But we take that, and we can't help ourselves, but we, we make it about us. God's got a plan for me, and it's for prosperity, and it's for an awesome future. I don't know, maybe, but that's not what that verse is about. God's got bigger plans than just you. I'm excited about his plans for his church. He's got amazing plans for his church. Prosperous, big church that changes the world. And I think I get to play a part in that. And that excites me. Mm. God has a plan for his church too. And we've got a part in it. But just like Moses, there are some things that we need to learn about God and about ourselves. There are some things that we need to experience. There are some characters that need to be honed. Mine is one of them. There is some faith that needs to be built. But sure enough, God is positioning and equipping us to fulfill his plan for the rock and for his church with a big C. So now, we move into Exodus. Chapter 2. Well, that's where I'm kind of speaking from. You should read it later. Exodus chapter 2, Moses grows up in the household of Pharaoh, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses was raised a prince of Egypt, but that was not who he was. That was not his true identity. That was not God's destiny for Moses. And then, randomly, Moses' life is turned upside down completely when he murders an Egyptian for abusing Hebrews. He is then forced to flee Egypt. Now, what Moses couldn't see at the time was God was mobilizing him because where he was was not where he needed to be. He was moving Moses from the safety and luxury of Pharaoh's court because he had an even grander destiny in store for him. Now, given a choice, prince of Egypt living in luxury or dragging a nation of ungrateful, whinging people through the desert for 40 years... In the flesh, we could say that one of them seems like it has God's blessing on it, and one of them is just toil. And most of us, probably certainly myself, would go for the easier option, because it just, I don't know, some part of me, it just seems more godly. God's favor is on it, so prosperous. But no, that was not who he was. Moses was not a prince of Egypt. He was born a Hebrew, and inside he knew that. And his destiny was so much bigger than a courtier. I think most of us would go for the palace. I certainly probably would in my weakness. I'm sure we could even fool ourselves into thinking that was God's plan. And I think we often do. Faced with the option of pursuing a risky, uncertain path that God is opening before us. Or sticking to what we know to be comfortable and safe. It's all too easy to take the soft option. Build a career. Work for promotions. Make money. Buy a car. Buy a house. Buy another car. Buy a boat. This is what I could see going out before me, and I hoped I could have that kind of thing. And that would demonstrate that God was blessing me. 
Travel. House, car, boat, travel. Do you really think that that is what God has for you? And if it is, why are you not a little bit gutted that that's all? That blessing dies with you. Actually, that car's out of date two years down the road anyway. And the house has probably got leaky issues. Mine does. I don't think my, most of the time I don't think my house is a blessing. No, thanks Lord, I, I do like it, it's good. But the house is functional. God is taking care of my family while he gets about positioning me for what he really has in store. Renovating an older house is not his plan for my life. Do you think your job, your car, your house, your material possessions mean anything in eternity? You know you're an eternal being, right? You know this is only the start of forever. Moses' purpose was to lead God's people out of bondage in Egypt back to the land of promise, the land of the covenant. But for the baby floating in a basket of reeds to become the Moses who would be the deliverer of Israel, there was a huge journey he needed to walk. His time in Pharaoh's court, that wasn't a detour. It was crucial. Moses may have been born a slave, but he wasn't raised one. And that is crucial. And I think it was one of the, the distinguishing feature between him and the people he led through the wilderness. They had a slave mindset. But Moses didn't. He was born among them. He was born in the hovels of slavery. But he wasn't raised in that. So his identity was not slave. His identity was prince. That's the way he thought of himself. He was raised amongst privilege. And he carried that. He didn't carry the same baggage that his people did. And we're going to explore that a little bit more next week. But the court of Pharaoh was crucial for him. He was raised as royalty. He was raised amongst leadership. And he needed that. To be a man who could rule and lead a nation of millions. That's what we're talking about in the Exodus through the wilderness. But he still wasn't the man he needed to be. So he was driven to the wilderness of Midian. Where he learns the humble, patient trade of shepherding. He cares for his... Uh, his uh, father-in-law's sheep, he feeds them, he protects them, he develops a love for them. And in this, he develops a mindset he would need to later shepherd millions and not be a leader like the pharaohs were, hard and cruel, but someone who loves and cares for every sheep. It is in this wilderness season that Moses finally meets his God. He didn't meet God in the palace of Pharaoh. He met him in the wilderness of Midian. He met him at Horeb, at Sinai. And he met him in the most powerful, amazing encounter you could have. He didn't just connect with God from an old story. He came face to face with the presence. And that changed everything.
Moses encounters God, and in that he finally discovers who he really is. He discovers his purpose and his destiny. Midian was not a detour for Moses. He may have fled there to escape the wrath of Pharaoh. He may have resigned himself to the life of a simple shepherd and made plans to raise a family there among those people. But God had his eye and his hand on him the whole time. And in Midian, he came into the household of a priest of God. And in that season, he came to know God for himself. In this season, he received revelation and his part of God's plan for Israel. In this season, Moses became acquainted with the power of God and God's compassion for people. Midian mattered. Egypt mattered. Joseph's prison cell mattered. The famine mattered. All of these trials and tribulations and seasons mattered. They were crucial in bringing God's people closer to the fulfillment of his promise. They were essential in shaping the people into who they needed to become. You know, God has a plan for his church as well. Just as glorious as it ever was for Israel. And the rock has a part of that plan. And you have a part of that plan. And it just so happens that right across this place, in this season, God is honing people. God is is breaking people down. He has been breaking me down in the most full-on ways. Hasn't been easy, hasn't been painless. But God has been breaking off mindsets, deceptions, misunderstandings, pride, a lot of pride. And then rebuilding me and others into someone who can help fulfill his plan. He is mobilizing us as a church. He is repositioning us. We are not who we were. And who we are is not who we're going to be, is the prophetic word that has been sitting over this house for the last two years almost. I feel like it's only now that I'm really starting to understand that. And as I've been meditating on that prophetic word... I've been seeing such a strong correlation between that and the story of the Israelites moving from Egypt where they were into the wilderness where I feel that we are but then on into the promise where we are going. That is something that I I want to get stuck into next week. I think there's so much powerful stuff in there for us on that word. We are a work in progress here at The Rock. And I don't actually know if anyone here, even Greg, really knows what that work's going to look like when it's finished. But I think it's going to be pretty cool. We are a work in progress, and unfortunately, that work isn't always easy and painless. If the heroes of the Bible are anything to go by, a few of us may have some tough times ahead. I know a lot of going through tough times now. But it is those times... That God is able to shape us into the history makers that he has destined us to be. 
In James chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is transforming the rock into a community of disciple makers. That is what he is doing here. He is looking to raise up mature, faith-filled, spirit-filled disciples. But we need to understand that that process is probably not as easy as we would like. It takes sacrifice. It takes faith and risk and sometimes even loss. But in those trials, we find the faith and dependence on God that will see us rise to our destiny as kingdom builders. Our journey with Christ can take us to all kinds of places and through all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of trials. And there are many times when we want to ask, God, where are you? Because it often seems like he isn't there. And if God was here, how could I be going through this? Certainly for me and Leslie, losing uh, a pregnancy, losing a baby last year. There were times when it, when, it, when it got to that. Where are you, God? What are you doing? But I guess what God has been reinforcing, certainly for me, is that He is faithful. And a promise I will never lose is that He will never leave me or forsake me. And he never left, and he never forsook Israel, and he doesn't abandon his church. He is always there. So the question is not, where are you, God? But, Lord, what are you looking to do in me through this? Because I don't want to miss an opportunity to grow, and I believe that God will never miss an opportunity through any circumstance to grow us. And that's what I believe he means in Romans 8 when he says he will use all circumstances for our good, for those who love him. Now, I don't believe for a second that any of the tragedies that have befallen me in my life were God's hand. I don't believe God does bad things to his people. He loves his children. But I don't believe for a second that he misses any opportunity to take those circumstances and work it to, a, to good. And I have seen that so often. I actually have a pretty strong faith. And that faith was born in struggle. If you've heard my testimony, you know I was raised by a solo mum. I was working a number of part-time jobs while putting herself through T-Cole. And so when I was a, when I was a young man... We didn't really have anything. When I say we didn't really have anything, I mean actually there being no food at all in the cupboards for breakfast. Uh, and a, a sound I, will, I, will, I don't think I'll ever lose, the sound of my mother crying herself to sleep in the next room, crying out to God in a prayer I half heard through her sobs for God to feed her family. 
but it's hard not to build some faith when there are groceries on the doorstep the next day. It wasn't a phone call. There was just a mother crying out to God and his hand of provision miraculously the next day. What does that, the faith of a child? That's where my faith was birthed. It was in poverty that I learned to trust in God and that he will never let me or my family go hungry. Mm, that's good. I wouldn't have learned that if I came from wealth. And so I don't regret a thing of my childhood, any struggles we had. My family broke up when I was, I was young when I was 13. Actually, Dad wasn't around before that either. So I didn't actually learn fatherhood from my own father. I learned it from God himself. And when I was 13, and I actually made my first real commitment to God, he didn't actually reveal himself so much as Jesus the Christ. Who he presented himself to me as was Father God. And it was Father that I desperately wanted. And it was his love of me that shaped the father that I would become. But if I'd come from a stable home, I don't know if I would have necessarily got all that. I needed that brokenness, that desperation for God to actually find that. But if I think I track through all the major, you know, catalyst points of growth in my faith, I would find that they were all birthed out of, out of trial and hardship. But what God has done in me through that, the reward is just too great and I wouldn't change anything. God created the earth to revolve annually through four seasons. Spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Winter isn't the sucky season that we would all flag. Winter is just as crucial as every other season. The work that is happening in a seed during winter, the land lying fallow and being restored. Spring needs winter. We need winter. We need the rest. We need that season to rebuild. The crops need winter as much as they need harvest. And we need seasons of trial and testing as much as we need times of abundance and harvest. It is in these times that God is able to shape us so much more into the likeness of Christ and turn his church into his bride. Wilderness and promised land, winter and spring, seed time and harvest, abundance and famine. We need them all, and God works in them all. There are a number of levels at which this truth is exemplified. In our own lives, where today we need to trust God, that he has our best in mind, and we'll use whatever circumstances we face for our good and for the good of his kingdom. We also need to trust God on his promises for our church. This last season has been a tough one for so many. 
And it still is. And many have left us. But at all times we need to trust that God knows what he is doing. And seek him for the part that we would, he would have us play here. We are all part of a community here. And God's purpose is tied up with us for a much greater plan than we've ever had before. So when things get hard and things aren't quite the way we would like, we can't be looking around for a church and a plan that fits us better. Because it's not about us. I'm having an interesting conversation with a friend lately about trying to find a church in, in, a, in a new city. And the whole conversation was about how the music was and how it made them feel and how exegetical the preaching was and how the church met their needs. And I get that because I used to be a part of that machine. But I love being part of a church now where it's, it's not even about that. But it's about God's plan and his kingdom. And it's about what I can do to build that. It's not about what I can take from this. We can't come to church as consumers. We can't even we can't even think about church as a as an event, as a service, as a building. We know it's not that. It's us, it's a community. And a community is not about us, it's about the community. I think it's only when we have that mindset that we can truly come to love each other. And lastly, we need to trust God for what he is doing in the world. We need to trust in his timing and his plan. We need to trust that he has all things in hand and he will fulfill his promises. We need to see in all things an opportunity to press deeper into the Father. And it's my daughters again that are teaching me this. At every opportunity, or every, every struggle is an opportunity for more of him. Stephen, this week, in the car, I got a headache. And I'm thinking, oh, is there Panadol in the car? Oh, 15 minutes away, I can get some Panadol from home. And Dad's grumpy. And the girls want to know why. I've, I've got a headache, sweetheart. Okay, just please be quiet. Their response? Let's pray, Daddy. Jesus will make it better. Their first instinct is him. Pastor, Daddy. Oh, no, it's my fourth option. But my headache then becomes an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed as he heals me miraculously through the prayer of my daughters. The mouth of babes. Yeah. Need to pray for some more headaches. All right. There's a lot more to come, but I, I want to I want to save that for for next week. But what what I want to leave you with is just a question and a, and a meditation now, and that's I would encourage you this week to uh, just to explore your circumstances now, to think through what you've been facing and what you are facing now, and in your meditation with the Lord, ask Him, Lord, what did, what is it that you were that you were looking to do in me?
I hold for myself the promise of Philippians 1 verse 6. I believe it's true for me and for you also. This is a verse my mother gave me when I left home uh, just to speak over my life. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of the Lord. Have faith in this. He is doing something in you. And whatever's going on in your life, he's going to use that to help complete that work. And the more we surrender ourselves to that work and partner with him in that, the more we will grow from it. So we need to look at our circumstances now. And some of it will be tragic, and I'll have no counsel or, or wisdom for. I don't understand so much of what has happened to, to my family and friends of mine. But I trust God, and we need to trust God that he will work something for our good through that. And remember also, it is not even about us. That all of this is part of an amazing plan that is so far beyond even this church. And it is our privilege to be a part of that. So please, this week, I'd encourage you, examine your circumstances and engage with the Lord on these things. Prayer is not us talking at God. It is a communication between the two of us. Ask him, Lord, what are you doing? How can I give myself over to you more to receive the biggest benefit of this? And Lord, give me faith to trust in you through this. Let's pray. Lord, I don't don't thank you for the hardship in my life. But I do thank you for, Lord, what you do through it. Lord, I pray that you would give us all sight to see what it is you are doing in all the seasons of our life. And to take the best that we can from them. And I pray, Lord, that whatever the season, whatever the circumstance, you would build our faith just as you did with Abraham, just to believe you and to follow no matter what. I pray comfort for those that are hurting. I pray, Lord, that your hand would be on their shoulder, that you could even feel it, and they would know that it is true that you never leave us or forsake us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the vision that you have for our community here that we would see what the promises that we could believe in thank you Lord in Jesus name